Take your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Christians have often been accused of being tight, right? Putting rules on people. Uh, We're seen as people of no fun. People who judge others harshly. And there seems to be a couple of different reasons, I think, for this perception. Uh, One is because the gospel does expose sin. And as people's idols get poked, they, they don't like it. So that the things that we used to do and that the world believes is exciting and important, we just don't have interest in anymore. So in this, we would agree with the world's opinion. However, a second reason, I think, is that what they say seems to be true. Many Christians have attached a long set of rules to the gospel and guidelines to the Christian life and and seek to judge anyone who doesn't line up with what they think and conform to it. And rather than seeing pure lifestyles as the result of salvation, they seem to see it as a cause of salvation. But that's a very dangerous heresy because the gospel requires nothing else but grace for salvation. To add anything to the gospel denies the gospel itself. And sadly, this challenge has been a battle in the church from the very beginning. Paul encourages the churches he has just planted in Galatia. And he battles a group of people who sought to force the church to conform to the law of Moses for salvation. And in this section we'll look at today, we observe Paul's battle against these heretics and and the reality that we must proclaim the gospel plus nothing else. The gospel plus nothing else. Let's look at the first 10 verses of Galatians today. So we will seek to make it through. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers securely brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and and, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
As we look at the book of Galatians, it's a little bit different letter than what Paul typically writes. As Paul typically writes, he writes uh, an epistle, which is very uh, didactic. In other words, it, it outlines really well. It's a lot of uh, just, just challenges and points that he makes. But Galatians is more of a, a narrative, almost a biography of everything that Paul has been doing in order to defend the gospel. And so as we handle this text today, we're going to handle it like a narrative, not like we typically do with Paul's letters. And so we're going to look at this text in two ways. First, we're going to walk through the narrative Paul presents and, and look at how it plays out in the book of Acts. And then we're going to draw out some important lessons from uh, for us today from this text. And so as we work through this narrative together, really it breaks down into three key events that took place in the early church and in Paul's ministry. The first event that Paul presents to us is the battle against the Judaizers. The battle against the Judaizers. He tells us after 14 years, he has ministered, he has planted churches in Galatia. And so he went to, with Barnabas to, uh, to Jerusalem, taking Titus with them. He says, I, verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I would proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So there's some events that have happened that have caused Paul to look at all that's going on in the church and he is concerned. Now, we need to write at the outside. He says he, he did this to make sure he was not running in vain. He's not saying he was concerned that his gospel was wrong. Like he would go and they'd say, no, you're wrong. Because the previous text already demonstrated that Paul got this from God. But what he's concerned about is that as he preaches the gospel, this group of people would undermine everything he had done and destroy the churches. And these people were the Judaizers. Throughout his long and widespread ministry, Paul fought against these emanaries of Satan, these Judaizers, who always sought to discredit him and the truth. And we see this history of the battle back in the book of Acts. You can keep your finger in Galatians chapter 2 and turn back to Acts 11. Acts chapter 11. Here in Acts 11, we have this account from Peter. In chapter 10, as Peter was meditating and praying to God, he had this vision. And we remember this vision where this sheet comes down from heaven filled with all the animals that the law of Moses declared unclean. And God told Peter, kill and eat these things. And Peter, of course, being Peter, says, God, you're wrong. I can't do that. Right? And God says, no, I'm God. I tell you. Right? He says, no, you can kill and eat them. What I declare is clean, don't say is unclean. And so he is uh, completing what Christ has already said back in Mark, declaring all foods unclean, demonstrating that he had fulfilled the law of Moses. So it is no longer in effect. And with this, right after this, this group comes from a man named Cornelius in Caesarea. And Cornelius is a Gentile. And he has this vision from God about salvation. So he sends his servants to Peter and says, come over and help us. Come and, and, and you need to meet with us. And so Peter goes to this group of Gentiles and he presents to them the gospel of grace alone. That Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, rose from the dead the third day. And that as we declare him as our Lord, he imparts to us salvation and eternal life. And these Gentiles were miraculously saved. And the Holy Spirit came on them to reveal that indeed this was true 
true, the gospel, the way to become part of the people of God is now open to the Gentiles as well. That is a massive change. Up to this point, in order to become a people of God, a part of God's people, you had to become a Jew. And now, because of the cross, we recognize that you become a Christ person, a Christian. That is how you become a people of God. And so, in chapter 11, Paul has to go back to this church that is all Jewish at this point and report to them what has happened. And in chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, he reports to the church that indeed, I did these things. All these things happened. He lays out in the first eight, uh, nine verses, these, this vision that he had had and how it had happened to him. And then in verses 11 and on, he lays out the fact that he went over and preached to these people. But notice verse 15, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave us the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to say that I could stand in God's ways? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so suddenly this ministry is opened up to the entire world, to the Gentiles as well. And a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 13, we then see this apostle Paul called to the Gentiles. In chapter 13, in the first three verses, the Holy Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas for this work to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And they begin this ministry, but it is not without conflict. In that same chapter at the end, we begin to see conflict arise in Antioch. As he is preaching and Gentiles are being saved, we note in verses 44 on that the Jews that were in that area began to be incredibly angry about this. What do you mean other people can be part of the people of God? That is only for us. What are you talking about? And they actually run Paul out of the city. In chapter 14, that same conflict continues to occur in every city he enters, in Iconium, and then in Lystra. We notice specifically in verse 19 that the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So there's this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles, and it entered the church as well. Even the Jews that had received Christ as the Messiah still held on to their upbringing. This idea that you had to fulfill the law of Moses in order to be a part of the people of God. And so as Paul is preaching to these churches throughout Galatia, these churches mentioned in chapter 11 through chapter 15 of Acts, we see that these Jews began to tell the Gentiles, listen, I know Paul told you that all you had to do was accept Christ as your Lord, but you don't understand. The law of Moses tells you you have to be circumcised. You have to receive the sign of the covenant in order to be part of God's people. And this raised a a massive controversy. Back in Galatians chapter 2, in verse number 4, we get a picture of them. It says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. These Judaizers had crept into the church and Paul uses 
Very concise and, and colorful language there, right? They were secretly brought in. They, they sneaked in to spy out our liberty. It demonstrates a very evil and manipulative agenda. These words are u- words that are used of spies and traitors who infiltrate opposing armies. What was their goal? Their goal was to bring believers back into bondage to the law. Back under the law of Moses. And from Romans, we see that that means back into the bondage of sin. But through Christ, we've been made free from that. We don't have to sin. We don't have to obey the law of Moses. As believers, we don't have to sin anymore. We can overcome it. We, we don't have to ascribe to an individual's standards to have a relationship with God. We're free to serve God out of love and not duty. And, and frankly, if Paul had not been willing to wage this warfare over the gospel, the church in the first century might have only become a, another Jewish sect preaching a mixture of law and grace. But because of Paul's courage... The gospel was kept free from legalism and was carried through to the Gentiles with great blessing. So the Judaizers came in and began to stir things up. So Paul travels to Jerusalem in order to address this. And this then raises a second event, a battle over a person, a man named Titus. We see this uh, in verses 3 through 6. He says, but even Titus, excuse me, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So here we have this Greek man named Titus. And as he comes into Jerusalem, it is evident that the Jews expected him as a Gentile to conform to the sign of the law of Moses, circumcision. We see that back in Genesis chapter 17. In Genesis 17, God lays this out as a sign of the covenant that he is making with Abraham. He tells us in verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought in with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh and in an everlasting covenant." And so they're saying in order to become a people of God as a sign of of the Jewish covenant, you have to be circumcised. So in essence, by being circumcised, an individual would become a Jew, a people of God. And again, this battle is over what constitutes God's people. And Titus, as an uncircumcised Gentile and a product of the very ministry the Judaizers were attacking, was a fitting attendee to take along with them to address this issue with the church in Jerusalem. He was a Gentile Christian who had never submitted to the law of Moses. He had never been circumcised. He had never followed the various things there. 
But it was clear to everyone who knew Titus that he was genuinely saved. He was a genuine Christian. So, so here was an individual who had not become a Jew through circumcision and yet had become a partaker of salvation. But as he comes to Jerusalem, they tell him, you have to do this. But in order, if he did this, if he had submitted to it, he would have been adding works to salvation. If the Judaizers had succeeded here, then all true Christians would have been enslaved once again to the law. But by resisting this, he stood as a living illustration for the Jews of salvation by grace alone. We see that specifically in verse number five. He says to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The gospel of God's salvation by sovereign grace through man's repentant faith. A gospel contrary to the works righteousness of the Mosaic wall. He says, this is the message that we bought, that we fought for. It is the truth of the gospel. The gospel is a message of freedom, not Enslavement. That brings us to the third event that we see in this text, the conclusion of the Jerusalem council. So in verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I think this was referring back to Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem council that was called to deal with this very issue. Paul didn't have any misgivings about his gospel. He was not concerned that his gospel was not true. He said he battled for the truth of the gospel. But his concern was if he was working against the church in Jerusalem, or rather the church in Jerusalem was working against him, the churches that he had planted would crumble. They would fall because any that take that law of Moses and begin to apply it to salvation or frankly, any other set of rules and begin to make them necessities for salvation, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, undo the gospel itself. And so Paul went so that they might all be on the same page. With the Gentiles, Christ was all they knew. They didn't know anything about the Jewish tradition or the Old Testament law. Salvation was to them a free gift through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. For the Jew, however, tradition, the Mosaic law and the commandments were really important. It's what they'd grown up with. It's what they had always known. How could they simply cast those things off? They were ignorant of the relationship between law and grace. And this conflict early in the church began to rise. And it's been a conflict that rages in churches throughout history. What rules have to be obeyed? And the debate in this council was not just circumcision or uncircumcision, but really at its core was works-based salvation or faith-grace salvation. 
And so they met together in Acts 15. We're told some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they do this. And then we see in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And a debate begins to occur. And after verse 7, there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So Peter reviews all that has happened. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up and they begin to present everything that they have done. In verse 12, the, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So then James stands up and concludes the matter by giving a history lesson. He lays out the Old Testament, how all of it was not to be an end in itself, but rather was pointing to someone far greater. That in him the law would be fulfilled and we would be set free. And he quotes Amos chapter 9 where he says, I will call out from the Gentiles some by my name. And the church concludes rightly. The gospel is the gospel by grace alone. God had commanded Peter to preach to the Gentiles. God gave the Gentiles the Holy Spirit as a sign of genuine salvation. God erased the difference between Jews and Gentiles. And God removed the yoke of the law. And so they come to a conclusion that we see in verses 9 and 10. They extend to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they said, we're on the same page. We are preaching the same gospel. And those who are saying you have to be circumcised are false teachers. Warren Wearsby put it this way. The gospel of circumcision and the gospel of uncircumcision are not two different messages. There is only one gospel. There were just two spheres, one to the Jews and one to the Gentiles. In Christ Jesus, believers have liberty from the law as a way of salvation and liberty from its external ceremonies and regulations as a way of living. Now, that's perhaps interesting history, perhaps not interesting history, but it has some really important ramifications for us today. And so what I want to do is I want to draw out three really important lessons for us today from this narrative, from this battle that Paul went through with the Galatian believers. The first lesson is this. The gospel is a message of freedom, not enslavement. The gospel is a message of freedom, not enslavement. 
In verse 4, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. When we preach the gospel, when we bring the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, we are not doing so in order to conform people to a set of standards that we have laid out. This is a challenge that many Christians have. We confuse the results of the gospel and the cause of the gospel. We confuse the results of God's work in our heart and the cause of God's work in our heart. You see, the message of the gospel is this. You are free from all the work you are trying to do to make yourself right with God. It doesn't work. You can't make yourself good enough for God to accept you. You can obey every law in the book of Moses. You can receive the sign of the law of the covenant. You can receive and, and obey all the different laws in there with your clothing and with your actions. You can refrain from eating all these foods that he causes unclean. And you will not earn righteousness. In fact, Peter in Acts 15 tells them, our fathers couldn't bear that burden. They couldn't keep the law. How can we expect others who have never heard it to keep it? Now, while perhaps there are some today who still would hold that we need to obey the law of Moses mistakenly, most don't. Instead, we add other rules and laws. We add clothing rules that we expect of people that aren't law of Moses rules, so we don't have a problem if they intermix fibers. But God forbid that young lady shows her knee, right? Or that young man come into church not wearing a collared shirt. I don't know if they love Jesus. They certainly can't be saved if they're doing that, right? Or perhaps we point to musical standards. We confuse our preference, our likes in music with actual what God expects. We add all these different rules in order for someone to be saved. A young man walks in. He's turned his body into a canvas and he's got his little Mr. T starter kit going on. Young people, ask your parents. And we look at him and we say, ooh, Obviously, that guy is not a Christian. Obviously, he can't be saved because you have to fix that before you can be saved. When in reality, the gospel says you can do all those things, clean up all of that, and go to hell smelling good. Because it's not about your works. It is freedom in Christ. You don't do anything Christ does everything. And so we have to understand that the gospel is a message of freedom, not 
enslavement. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 7, he battles. I have tried to do right and I just can't seem to get it right. I've tried to obey the law and I can't get it right. And all the good things I want to do, I can't do. I am wretched and I'm miserable. Who's going to deliver me? And he concludes, it's Jesus Christ that delivers me. And he begins chapter 8 with this statement. There is therefore, because of that, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will stand before God and he'll say, not guilty. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. Christ has set us free from the commands of the law that we cannot fulfill. For what God has done in the law, weakened by the flesh, we could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, all of that was fulfilled in Christ. You don't clean yourself up for salvation. You come to Christ. And then he begins that amazing work whereby he sanctifies us and makes us like him and begins to clean us up over the course of time. So we have to be very careful as a people of God about coming with a sense of judgment and condemnation towards people that don't line up with what we think they should look like. Because we begin to judge whether or not they are people of God. But in reality, they come to God just as they are. And God does the work in them. So the gospel is a message of freedom, not enslavement. Tied in with that is a second lesson, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Back in Romans chapter 1, Paul has said this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This conflict in the church, this question was, listen, you have to become a Jew in order to become part of God's people. And the power of the gospel is it saves everyone. Sometimes we fall into that trap where we see people that we might not say it out loud, but we really feel, I don't think God can save them. Like they're too far gone. They're too messy, right? We think that way, perhaps about family members or coworkers or politicians that don't have the correct letter after their name. We begin to think, God can't save them. I mean, they're, they're too far gone. But the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. And when we think that, it reveals in us a sense of superiority that we ought not have. We begin to think that I am a child of God because I deserved it. God saw that I would put my faith in him and so he chose me because of that. I kind of cleaned myself up and then came to God or or I just wasn't that bad to begin with. I never did that. But Paul reminds them in Romans 3, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe there is no distinction. 
says this, listen, are we better than those people? We're not. All of us have sinned. All of us have condemned ourselves before God. And it is only God's grace that saves us. So lest we begin to look at those people with condemnation and judgment, we must remember that the gospel is for them just as much as it was for us. And it is for us just as much as it is for them. So as you are driving through Hillsdale and you come across some of these encampments, perhaps you begin to think, I wish these people would just leave. I wish these people would just go. We ought to remember that the gospel is for them. They need the saving power of Christ just as much as we did. As you're watching the television and that politician comes up with the wrong letter after their name, whichever one that is, and you begin to think, ah, I'm pretty sure they're, they're satanic. Like, I'm pretty sure Satan himself dwells in them. We must remember the gospel is the power of God for salvation. They need the gospel. This is why we pray for every political leader that we can on Sunday mornings. Unless we are confident, regardless of their affiliation, of their salvation, we pray that God would surround them with men and women who will confront them daily with the gospel of Christ. Because that's what they need. It's for everyone. You're not better because you grew up in church. You're not better because you didn't do those awful things. The gospel is what changes people. The gospel is what changes us. It is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And they don't have to conform themselves to your standards. They have to understand and submit to the power of the gospel. That's it. That brings then the third lesson from this text. We have a responsibility then to defend and proclaim the gospel. The gospel must be defended and proclaimed. Paul was facing a dire challenge. And I don't know that Paul enjoyed conflict any more than we do. But yet he was willing to stand up for the truth because it mattered. But he stood up for the truth of the gospel, not the truth of Paul. And so we must defend the gospel. We must battle to maintain that it is by faith, by grace alone. And we must proclaim it. I've said it often and I'll say it again. The reason our society is in the state it is in today is not because evil people are doing evil things, but rather because righteous people are quiet about the gospel. Righteous people are ashamed of the power of God. We are much quicker to share our thoughts on different medicine philosophies and different political opinions. We're very quick to share the different things we're trying to sell or the schools that we love the most. We're very quick to speak about the sports teams that we follow and the games that we enjoyed. But we're silent about the gospel. And the gospel is the one thing that will change the world. And so we must 
proclaim it. We must defend it. And it may cost us. This battle again reared its head in the 1500s. As the church itself had begun to apostatize. It consolidated itself around Rome in the Catholic Church. And began to preach a gospel of works. That you had to be baptized in order to be saved. And then you had to fulfill a series of sacraments in order to maintain your justification. And even then you couldn't quite make it. And so you had to work off the rest of your sin in this place called purgatory. But if some family members still lived and loved you enough, they could then buy indulgences that would pay off some of your time in purgatory. And of course, that conveniently aligned with the time they were trying to build a beautiful chapel in Rome. And several people began to recognize this was contrary to the gospel of Christ. The reformers that we're familiar with. Most notably among them is Martin Luther, who stood against this. And he makes this comment in a biography. He says this, Let this then be the conclusion of altogether, that we will suffer our goods to be taken away, our name, our life, and all that we have, but the gospel, our faith, Jesus Christ, we will never suffer to be wrestled away from us. And cursed be that humility which here abaseth and submitteth itself. May rather let every Christian man here be proud and spare, not accept he will deny Christ. We are for God assisting me. We are for God. My, my forehead shall be more hard than old men's foreheads. Here I take upon me this title. According to the proverb, I give place to none. Yea, I am glad, even with all my heart in this point, to seem rebellious and obstinate. And here I confess that I am ever and ever will be stout and stern. I will not give an inch placed to any creature. I will stand for truth. Martin Luther stood against the world. John Calvin and others stood against the world for this truth of the gospel. The reality that the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's not according to our standards or rules. It's not about what you wear. It's not about what you sing. It's not about what you say. It's not about whether you come to church or don't come to church. It's not about whether you've been baptized. None of those earn God's approval. Rather, it is all about whether you have submitted yourself to the cross of Christ and given your life to him. That's it. And when you do that, you are free from sin and the law. You don't have to do it anymore. The power of Christ begins to work in you to change you and grow you and sanctify you into conformity with the image of his son. We have to stand for this. We have to believe it. But the problem is too many of us don't really believe it. We think that change happens through
through laws or manipulation or arguments. We believe that we must somehow compel people to conform themselves to be right. Maybe if we can just get them to come to church, they'll be right. When in reality, it has nothing to do with any of that. We have the message. But we have to share it. We have to stand for it. We have to obey it. Three so what's as we walk out today. Number one, don't add anything to the gospel. Just don't do it. We're so tempted. We're so tempted to judge people based on our thoughts and our standards and our approval. Don't add to the gospel. It is simple for a reason. Because it's all of God. Number two, recognize that the gospel's not American. Sometimes we think that people have to conform to certain American standards in order to be saved. When in reality, it didn't start here and it won't end here. We must recognize that to be an American is not to be a Christian. They have nothing to do with each other. Rather, the gospel is all about the kingdom of God. Number three, don't impose your standards on others. Instead, point to the word. Often we try to tell people, in order to be right with God, you have to do this or that. And we impose our own standards on people. And we're confusing the cause of salvation with the results of salvation. The cause of salvation is simply submitting to Christ. The result of salvation is that he changes us and it is the word that does it. And so we point to the word towards things where he says, don't do this or thou shalt not do this. And so we point to a Christian sexual ethic and say, this is what Christians do. If you're a Christian, this is what God calls us to act like. It doesn't make you one, but he says, if you are one, this is what you ought to do. And we begin to conform in that way, not because of tradition, not because it's what we do as a church, but because it's what God's word calls us to do. And we do it out of gratefulness and thankfulness for the salvation that he has imparted to us. And we recognize that if someone doesn't conform to our standards, but is in conformity with the word of God, they can be a believer and that's okay. And allows us to interact with love and humility and stand on what is most important. The gospel of Christ. So believe, proclaim, and defend the unadulterated, pure gospel of Christ. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to look at your word. We thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. That all we need is him. We don't have to earn our salvation. But I'm so thankful for that because I know in my own heart there is no way I could ever be good enough to do that. So Lord, help us to be gracious and loving and humble. To share the gospel of Christ as the answer to this world's problems and ills, the sins that have bound them. And see them set free through relationship with you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.